lectionary, he consists of three one-year cycles of readings from the Old Testament and the Psalm, the Gospel, and a New Testament reading. On the one hand, I thought that this would force me to address scripture that I might otherwise avoid. On the other hand, I figured after three years, I would have covered it all and I could reuse my sermons. Unfortunately, that part didn't quite happen. I found that every time I returned to the scripture, it either had new meaning for me or the congregational context or the context of the world at large brought a different sense of what it meant. Another aspect of the lectionary is that it establishes the seasons of the church. It starts with Advent and Christmas, progresses through Lent and Holy Week and Pentecost, and in between these two groups of seasons, there are periods that are simply called ordinary time. This week is the end of that first period of ordinary time. It is also known as Transfiguration Sunday. Next week, we start the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday. Today's gospel reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Listen to the word of God. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth on earth couldn't whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. Then, a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Pastor Chris, for the last number of weeks, has been leading us through the meaning of key Hebrew words, words which have rich meaning within what we call the Old Testament. They are also the words that Peter and the other disciples would have understood shaping their understanding of both Jesus and what Jesus was teaching them. 
We'll look at some of these words again in a few moments, but first, we need to understand what it meant for them to encounter Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. Moses himself had come down from a mountaintop, glowing with such radiance that the Israelites could not look directly at his face. He had spoken to God, had received the Ten Commandments, and proceeded over time to add to the very laws of Israel with over 600 commandments divided between what they were supposed to do and what they were not to do. Elijah was considered the greatest of prophets in both the meanings of the word prophet. A prophet was one who proclaimed the truth of God as well as foretold events as inspired by God. Uniquely in 2 Kings chapter 2, it describes that he was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire. It was understood from Malachi chapter 4 that his return would precede the great and awesome day of the Lord. Further, in Luke chapter 1, an angel appeared to the high priest, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, saying that John would go on in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. Peter, who had a great habit of speaking before engaging Brain, takes in this incredible sight and blurts out, let us build three tabernacles, three holy tents of worship, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Peter would create on the mountaintop new places of worship, a new dwelling place for God on earth, not just for God, but for Moses and Elijah as well. But this would imply that our God is a God of mountaintops. An incredible God, but a distant God. A God that requires us to go to him rather than the amazing God that comes to us in the form, the human form of Jesus. Such an isolated God would be set apart from our daily lives, perhaps even unaware or irrelevant to our daily lives. More fundamentally, Peter wanted to place Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. Yet we are to worship God and God alone. We do not worship even the greatest of lawgivers, nor the law itself. We do not worship the prophets, but listen to the word of God that they proclaim, which leads us to worship God and worship God alone. Then 
the voice of God came from the cloud and stated, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus speaking through his actions leads them off of the mountaintop and back into the valley below. Whatever might have happened on that mountaintop, they were not to remain up there. They returned with Jesus to the ordinary times of life in the valley. I can imagine the whiplash of feelings as Peter, James, and John transitioned from the incredible experience of the transformation from some extraordinary time on the mountain back to the ordinary time below. Peter had reacted out of fear and terror, but what terrified him the most? The suddenness of the encounter, a direct encounter with God, or God's affirmation of Jesus, who Peter had just proclaimed as the Christ, even now, even though he now merely called him rabbi. Perhaps Peter was even more terrified by the impact of God's direction to listen to Jesus. In Hebrew, to listen also means to obey what you hear. Jesus had talked of his own death and resurrection. Jesus had told the disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Peter might be terrified by what might happen to him or be expected of him to do as a follower of Christ. In Mark's gospel, the transfiguration marks the middle of the book. We know the end of the story. Some of us have had personal and direct encounters with God, encounters that might, us, might cause us to have fears of what they mean, fears of rejection and mockery if we were to share those encounters, even sharing them within the confines of our faith community. Do we, as Peter's fear and terror, look forward to the future in a world full of uncertainty and change that we now barely recognize? Do we look forward with fear and terror as we understand what it means to listen to and obey Jesus? Do we worry that we are not up to the task of doing what Jesus asks of us? We think that the times that we are living in are extraordinary. They are unique as we grapple with new concepts of what is normal and what type of new normal we might be facing. There is the pandemic that keeps us apart, that takes the lives of loved ones 
or has lasting, lasting effects on the survivors. People struggle to find their next meal, to find a job, to secure housing to keep them safe and warm. There are incredibly deep divisions within the country causing truth and lies to almost become indistinguishable. We are at risk of listening to false prophets as they reinterpret scripture, twisting them to fit their own personal worldview. The world itself groans with changing climate and ever new conflicts. But are these times ordinary or extraordinary? Is all this just the definition of life in the valley, albeit coming at us in rapid and overpowering surges? What distinguishes time in the valley? What can change ordinary, even incredibly stressful and fearsome time into the valley is what we do, how we respond to it. We can make these times extraordinary. Down in the valley, Jesus encountered a demon-possessed boy, healed him, and stressed the importance of prayer. He saw a widow give all that she had as a rich man just gave out of his excess. Jesus warned of false prophets, of times of tribulation. He foretold his own death and resurrection. Jesus routinely transformed the ordinary time of life in the valley into extraordinary times. Let us go back to the mountaintop for a moment as we rehear God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. As Jesus came toward, a, toward the end of his journey, through the valley, he was asked, which is the most important commandment? He began his reply with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. It's interesting that as Jesus quoted the great Shema, which we have referenced many times or heard through Chris's sermons, we hear this phrase, you shall love the Lord your God. Two different words are being used in the Hebrew there. The first the Lord represents those four letters that represent God that a good Jew would never pronounce. 
Perhaps they didn't know how to pronounce it, but much more importantly, it was so sacred. They did not even want to take the chance of speaking it in vain. We often refer to that word as Yahweh, based on the Hebrew letters. But that second term, your God, is Elohim, a name for God. Interestingly enough, it's a plural noun, but takes single verbs and single adjectives. So there's a sense of a plural God who is our God. A 12th century Jewish scholar described the difference between these two terms as Yahweh is this transcendental God, a God who transcends all of time, all of space, all of the universe, a transcendent, all-powerful God. And yet Elohim is an eminent God, a God who is close to us, a God who is present with us. So we can talk about, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the God of all time, all energy, all space, is our God who is present, who is with us. Is Jesus. As Chris has led us through the Hebrew, our soul represents our entire living or our whole and complete body. Our heart is the home not only of emotions on this Valentine's Day, but also the home of our purpose the place from which our direction and resolve is formed. The heart is the very center of our being, the place that really does define who we are. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we start doing, doing righteousness. We treat all, yes, all, with compassion, but also work to end practices and social structures that limit or demean people. As Chris talked about our heart, we are to enlarge our heart by showing compassion and empathy for all, especially for those who struggle. Yes, we do have righteousness through Christ, we also have the Holy Spirit to lead us, to soften our hearts, to breathe into us the breath of life. But just as we cannot hold our physical breath forever, we must breathe it in and out. So we must breathe out the Spirit in acts of love as we serve and help others. We must accept God's loving kindness, hesed, and share it with all. Years ago, I took a course on conflict transformation, how to address conflict in a positive 
transforming way. It was taught by a minister from the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center outside of Chicago. He described having worked in a Central American country racked by civil war. In the village that hosted him, some young men would be drafted by the government, others by the rebels, and trained to fight the other side. As a result, few families hadn't lost sons or brothers, even fathers, to the violence. Even worse, death often came at the hands of other villagers. He described the healing process based upon Psalm 8510, which we have heard many times recently. Steadfast love and truth meet together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. As he described it, he imagined it like an intimate May Day or May Paul dance with flowing streamers attached to the pole. First, loving kindness would be in the front as truth waited its turn. Moving in the opposite direction, righteousness and peace would alternate, alternate in the forefront and then fade into the background, creating this beautiful pattern of streamers upon the pole. Without love, truth could not be freely spoken nor accepted. But without truth, steadfast love had no basis for its existence. Righteousness is an active effort to establish right relationships based on equity, generosity, fairness, even or especially with those who are not like us. Or as the Mennonite pastor emphasized, even with those who have wronged you, even with those who have killed your kin, only then does true peace Shalom have a chance to exist. Only then can we find ourselves in right relationship with God, with each other, and with all of God's creation, which is the true meaning of peace. Do we live in ordinary times? Yes, in spite of the disease and divisiveness. Yes, in spite of the economic pains. Yes, in spite of the horrible loss of life. Yes, in spite of the disruption to everything that we have considered normal. If we wish to transform 
these ordinary times into extraordinary times, we can start by living, perhaps even dancing, Psalm 85, as we create a rich Maypole fabric of love and truth, righteousness and peace. But in order to live the psalm, we need to be transformed ourselves. That transformation starts on the Mount of the Transfiguration as we hear God's directive to listen to Jesus. It continues as we come down into the valley, as we travel with Jesus through Lent to Jerusalem and all that awaits there. It requires us to hear anew how Jesus commands us to obey the great Shema, to love God and also to love our neighbor. All these valley events unfold as we continue through Lent. Yet today, we jump ahead of the story of Lent for our own extraordinary moment. We know we are incapable of doing all that Jesus commands us to do on our own. We need help. We need incredible, life-changing, and life-saving help and hope. We find that here at the Lord's table. Here, Jesus invites us to gather, to share, to take into our very beings his spirit, his loving kindness, his forgiveness, and his mercy, here at the table, we find strength and encouragement. Here, we can experience our own mountaintop time of peace before we go back down into the valley as peacemakers. Amen.